Hello, this is Frank Falvey with Frank Presents. And today it's my uh, privilege and honor to have a outstanding author, Chris Wolf, and we will talk about uh, his authorship and his book later on. But Chris is also on another program here on uh, 102.9 FM called Tortem of Perfect Union, and you're one of the co-hosts. That's right, yes. Chris, how have you enjoyed uh, that program? Uh, well, it was um, an interesting process. I was uh, invited on to uh, first to talk about my book, and they said, you should come back next week. And then uh, one thing led to another, and within a few months, I ended up as uh, co-host with uh, Nick Rimmersong. Uh, and it's been a lot of fun. We explore a lot of interesting topics, large and small, local and national and international. So uh, it's a good, good place to discuss what's going on in the world with a good uh, forum of people. Chris, where did you go, grow up and, and what's your background? So um, uh, I was born in England, obviously, just outside of London. Uh, there's a little strip of the Thames River between uh, Heathrow Airport and Windsor Castle, and I grew up along there, uh, a little suburban town called Shepparton, uh, and um, didn't know what I wanted to do at all uh, when I was uh, at school. Most of the kids at my school went to um, either into the army or into um, um, laboring jobs. And uh, I was lucky enough to run into a teacher, a mentor, who steered me to going to university. And he ended up getting into um, Queen's College, Cambridge, Cambridge University, where I studied history. And, um, and then still didn't know what I wanted to do after graduating. And so I uh, started learning to be an accountant. Couldn't stand that at all. Fell asleep reading the books, <laughs> literally. Um, I love you know numbers, but this was not working for me. And then I saw a job uh, advertised as a researcher at the BBC World Service, which seemed much more interesting and, and fitted much better with my uh, interests and knowledge in world affairs. And uh, from there, I uh, climbed into the newsroom of the BBC World Service in London um, and became a journalist. Uh, I did some travel with them um, and but mostly uh, as a uh, but mostly ended up in studio production um, live radio news live so, radio news yes that was a lot of um, interesting fun live radio international news you know where you have a whole one hour program lined up and then at one minute uh, broadcast time they they there was a, an assassination attempt on the Israeli prime minister so you throw out the entire program and make it up on the fly yeah. so it was um, Stressful, but at least uh, no one was shooting at me like they were uh, in Afghanistan. But that's a that's another story. Cambridge uh, University is a very highly respected uh, university. I know, and they let me in. So and they let you in. <laughs> so yes, I was quite uh, quite lucky uh, to have someone who helped prep me for the interview and exam to to get in. And uh, uh, yeah, so I. I you know, it's a life debt that I owe to Mrs. Butler uh, for the rest of my life. So it was your major in history? Correct. And world history or English history or um, anything particular? So they force you to do um, some early history, like early modern history, or 1500s, 1600s. But my interest has always been in more modern history, which is like post-1800. So I did a lot of um, international relations 
um, and that kind of thing, the kind of stuff that would pr prepare you for a career in the Foreign Service or, or BBC World Service. Yeah. So did did you all also take writing journalism classes on uh, no, writing? I had no uh, idea about following that career at the time. My best thought was that I'd like to be one of those smart people they wheel out on TV to comment on um, international affairs, but uh, uh, it wasn't able to pursue an academic career, so uh, I just like, literally stumbled and bumbled into the BBC almost by accident. I mean, I only saw the job because my brother was as an working as an engineer at the BBC already, and he happened to have a copy of the staff magazine and there was a literally the ads in the back um, for jobs and I thought oh I could do that the the uh, information research job and uh, so I thought well it's gonna it's be a huge pay cut but I I think I'll be more interested in that um, yeah. than journalism and then um, back then you learned a trade by pretty much doing it on the job and learning from your um, editors and yeah. co-workers yeah. Uh, so that was how I ended up getting trained. So the, the were, were you, were you uh, on uh, on the air? Were you the person uh, speaking on the air, um, or how did you work your way up? So initially, the um, we're talking about radio, right? Correct. So yeah. I the um, I did a variety of things. I was working uh, in the monitoring station, which is the um, BBC maintains a monitoring station which intercepts all broadcasts from all over the world and then we would write news highlights so if you're getting an announcement from which what was then the Soviet Union or, or China or North Korea you would write news copy on that for the newsroom so that was one of the first writing jobs I did um, then I did uh, talks analyzing um, international events you know like uh, the attacks on the, the Kurds the the attacks on the Shiites in Iraq um, uh, you know, wars and conflicts in different places. Uh, then I climbed into the newsroom where again we're writing copy for broadcast, uh, distilling the latest news and that was an incredible honor because I worked with people, uh, there was one guy, Mike Fitzgerald, who had ended the 1973 war between uh, Israel and the, the Arab nations because, uh, and there's film of this where um, the Egyptian commander in Sinai is, gets the order from Cairo to cease fire. He thinks it's an Israeli trick. He won't believe the order to cease fire until he hears it on the BBC. And I, Mike wrote the snap <laughs> <laughs> into the bulletin to, to dictate that, which was then translated into Arabic, uh, which is how that general heard the news and ordered the ceasefire. So, wow. yeah, it was a great privilege. And um, uh, I didn't realize I mean, I think the first time I realized that I could have an impact on the world was when I was asked to do a little story on a dissident being detained in Madagascar. And um, I thought, okay, whatever, I just culled the copy from the, the news agencies, Reuters and, and AFP and things of that nature, wrote the story, you know, short 25 second story. Yeah. And the um, the next day, the, the guy was released due to international pressure, and I was thinking, Oh, that was partly me. <laughs> and it's like, that, it was like, oh my God, you can make a difference in the world. Uh, so that was quite, quite an education. It, it must take some talent uh, to bring a program and, and, and develop it into a story. 
In other words, you, you, you need to think about uh, how you're going to present the story and, and who you're going to talk uh, to. Who to. you're going to talk to, what right. you're going to ask. Uh, yep. That, that must be exciting and challenging at the same time. And you have to do it on the same day because it's the news. So you have to, you'll have your morning, your editorial meeting at the beginning of your shift um, where you're like uh, planning what to do with the programs that are going to start very soon. Um, and uh, yeah, you have to be very on top of um, international affairs, the importance of the news so you know who to talk to. Um, and then, then you call up like the players. So, uh, <laughs> well, there's another funny story. So there was a British diplomat who was helping negotiate, trying to negotiate peace in the war in the former Yugoslavia, Lord Owen. And um, so he was the kind of person, you know, you would call up and say, yeah. so what's the latest? Yeah. What are you, who are you yeah. talking to today and what's, what's happening? Yeah. And one day he had a, uh, an initiative that he wanted to uh, break. Um, and he called the wrong person in the newsroom. It was like 4 a.m. On, on the night shift. And poor Colin Thatcher, bless him, he says, uh, hello, this is Lord Owen here. And he says, right, and I'm Napoleon Bonaparte. <laughs> 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 I hung up on him. So um, yeah, sometimes mistakes were made, for sure. Uh, but uh, yeah, so it was, um, so you have, obviously, being the BBC World Service, people do have that. It, does, it is a door opener. People do answer the phone um, and give you um, the information you want if they want to share it, you know, or trying to yeah. massage the message because it is an important yeah. um, part of the part of the game. And again, another example of so I didn't do a lot of field reporting, partly because I found it too terrifying um, because you're going to places that are, you know, yeah. There are landmines and bombs and shells and, uh, you know, terrorist groups and goodness knows what else and just plain old criminals. Um, so I didn't uh, enjoy that kind of lifestyle, although I did try a few trips, um, including one that's the subject of my book, right. um, Bumbling Through the Hindu Kush, a memoir of fear and kindness in Afghanistan. Um, and uh, that was... Um, a little after that trip and another one to Africa where I decided that I wasn't cut out for that kind of life. You know, starving babies and dead right. people isn't, right. and people shooting at me wasn't really my cup of tea. So I have a tremendous amount of respect for what, what I call real war correspondents, people who go, go back to places like that. And of course, uh, for veterans who endure far, far worse than any journalist does uh, in, in terms of having to deal with uh, the traumas of uh, war and conflict, um, but uh, I've lost the uh, initial point now. I think so, we were talking so, about yeah. So you 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 hadn't done many field trips uh, before before this one then. No, they um, there was no training back then. You considered if you're. British, then you are probably well equipped enough just by virtue of being British to manage any situation <laughs> in the world. Um, and uh, the only advice I got was from a chap who had been in the um, Bangladesh War of Independence in 1971. And he said, just wear a pink shirt, old boy. No one's going to shoot anyone in a combat zone wearing a pink shirt. Um, and uh, it was totally unhelpful uh, advice. Um, and uh, 
part of my, so for the last 20 years of my life, one of my roles was um, managing correspondent safety. So I gave them uh, everything that I never had. So communications equipment, um, life-saving body armor, helmets, um, you know, ways to, um, just and just the training to survive in a hostile environment. Yeah. Uh, for example, uh, there was a chap called um, Richard Myron who went on the training and learnt that if you're in a vehicle and it comes under fire, the safest thing to do is actually stop and get out and just take cover because uh, it's instinctive for a soldier to, if they see a vehicle to keep shooting until it stops. And obviously if they keep shooting, it's gonna do a lot more damage than if it stops and, and the people get out. And so he actually had to do this in, um, uh, in the West Bank, uh, in um, Israel, Palestine, and um, saved his life. So there was a number of instances where that were, um, I'm pleased to say that everybody I trained and sent out came back in, in mm -hmm. one piece uh, physically, uh, although of course it's still, you can't really uh, prepare people for, properly for the stress and trauma that they have to deal with. So that was, um, that was you know, there are some people who have, have had struggles, but right. it's... Uh, but one of the interesting things going back is, to me, has been, how do you keep contact of people? In other words, there must be a huge backlog of phone numbers, addresses, yeah. the name and the position. I mean, if you're a, a, a reporter in uh, in in on uh, uh, in Palestine, right? And uh, I don't know, uh, maybe Palestine. You're in Africa, mm -hmm. right? And there's a bunch of teenagers with guns and around you and I don't know, you, you need to make phone calls to, to someone to tell them what's going on, where you are, what's happening. How, how, do you, how do you resource? I mean, there must be a huge number of contacts that the BBC has with phone numbers and what they do and how um, does that work? Well, that's an interesting and somewhat contentious uh, issue. So if you're on the, in the field, you're pretty much on your own. You have your own system. Um, but for the first couple decade and a half, I guess, um, was pre-digital. So everything was literally on a Rolodex. Right. You, you have your own kind of Rolodexes and you would share with people in your own area uh, numbers and then add them to your own little collection. Then once, once we became digital, um, like in the early 2000s, then there were efforts made um, to create uh, a contacts database. And uh, they were very unsuccessful because a lot of people were very jealous of their contacts and their access and didn't want to um, jeopardize um, those kinds of things. So you'd find that uh, individual programs would have their own sets of database, their own database of contacts. Uh, and there was, you know, obviously conflict between other programs, you know, who wanted to get access to their contacts and, and couldn't occasionally. And so, yeah, manage, one of management's jobs is constantly to berate people to share your contacts. And there, about seven or ten years ago, they came up with a new platform which did include a massive shared um, database of contacts, and uh, that's still there. As far as I know, I, be, I retired 
from the BBC in yeah. 2020, so I'm not fully up to speed anymore if anything's changed since then. Right. Well, th this book takes place where now? So um, when I reached the point in my career where I was thinking that I was ready to try the life of a foreign correspondent, yeah. Yeah. I decided I would um, uh, take a little primer before taking on the whole coat of paint. So I um, <laughs> arranged to go visit my friend who had got the job in Kabul, Afghanistan to see if I'd like the life of a foreign correspondent. So technically it was a vacation, yeah. um, but you know, I <laughs> went with the, with the blessing of my manager and right. um, went to uh, Afghanistan, supposedly for a week, but then we got um, stuck behind rebel lines on the wrong side of the mountains and um, had to, we were lucky enough to get a message out through the Red Cross to London to say, Chris, will be late for his shift on Thursday. He's stuck behind rebel lines. So <laughs> I think it was one of the only places where that kind of excuse would be, uh, you know, held, looked at favorably. So, um, yeah, yes, it was, we only, it, we did actually, we thought we were gonna be stuck for the whole winter, um, but we did actually find a way out, um, which was a little hairy, but we made it out. So the whole trip really was only about two weeks, but very intense and transformative uh, for me as well, uh, because you know you get to see uh, just how lucky we are. You know we gripe and moan about how our lives are difficult, but um, there's no landmines you're going to step on on the way to school. Mm -hmm. There's no uh, no one trying to kill you or rob you right. uh, <laughs> on so, every street so corner. So this this chronicles the two weeks, or does it yeah. lead up? So there's a little. It's basically explaining um, how I was. Uh, so stupid enough to decide to go, uh, how I got ready, um, uh, you know, a little bit about my own personal background, and then uh, most of the book is, yes, just uh, the day-by-day -day, uh, adventures, and then there's a little wrap-up at the end about how I've dealt with it um, uh, in the years since. Since that, that period. Right. So that was, so, uh, let's so just to set it in context, that was 1991. So the Soviets had just invaded Afghanistan, had just left Afghanistan after 10 years of occupation, um, and but their successor regime, the communist regime in Afghanistan, uh, was um, was still hanging on. It was a lot more successful than the regime that uh, the United States left behind in a couple of years ago. So uh, they were doing very well. Um, be, the the uh, Islamic rebels, the Mujahideen, the our friends at the time, had launched a massive. Uh, offensives to try and seize power and had failed for um, two or three years and so it was pretty uncertain when I went there where what the course of the Civil War was going to be but then a few weeks after I left the Soviet Union itself collapsed and um, the regime in Afghanistan once the it stopped getting supplies from Russia uh, collapsed uh, so, pretty so soon th after. this book takes place uh, with the Soviet Union uh, uh, was in Afghanistan, not the United States. Cor well, the Soviets uh, had just left, but their regime, their puppet regime, was still was in still power. Functioning. And everywhere yeah. you went, yeah. signs were. Um, sign there was no signs in any Western alphabet. It was either in the local languages, which is related to Persian, uh, primarily the the signposts, uh, or in um, 
the Cyrillic script of Russia and I couldn't read anything. So it's one of the most disorienting things uh, when I arrived at the airport was like, well, where? <laughs> just at the airport, where do I go? Where's the exit? Where is there a taxi rank? And uh, so it was uh, one continuous set of disorienting uh, misadventures. Wow. Yeah. Wow. The, the, um, the cult, the, the people themselves that you ran into behind the lines, yep. right? Did the person just, you know, probably like in, uh, 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 were they committed to uh, uh, just surviving themselves or did they have any political or, or uh, strong religious beliefs that were supporting either side? Uh, it's a mix. Yes, uh, there were, I'd say, as in any civil war, 90% of people are just trying to survive and they'll say whatever they need to say um, to get by. To whoever is asking the question. Correct. So, for example, uh, the end of the trip, our last dangerous part was a, we went by taxi. So we, we um, were lucky enough to find a guy foolish enough to go on this dangerous trip. and. Um, uh, we gave him half the money up front, and we'd give him half the money when we got back. But he, before we left, it was so dangerous. He gave, we went, he went home to say goodbye to his wife and children and give her the money. And then, um, then we went uh, off and he had to, um, so we, we were starting at that point in a government controlled city, so run by the communists. Yeah. And um, the countryside was, uh, you know, overrun with the uh, Islamic rebels. So we are going to be passing th through government and rebel lines constantly on the way back uh, to the capital. And so he has three days of stubble. So obviously, if you're a Muslim rebel, you want, you want to have some kind of beard. Uh, if you're clean shaven, then they'll know that you're a government uh, stooge and top, chop you. Um, so he had to remove all the pictures uh, from his um, uh, visor. In, in the car so that you know if you have any um, photographs or, or drawings uh, to Islamic rebels that can be seen as idolatry and again right. you know, sign, sign right. that you're working for the government right. um, and so he was trying to look make his vehicle and himself as neutral as possible um, and then then he goes to the army base and there's a hole in the fence next to the fuel depot where he pays some um, bakshish to get some gas from right. one of the soldiers right. for cash, you know, and then we're so we're filling up and then we get to the edge of town and we're um, stopped and arrested by the secret police. So <laughs> <laughs> and I'm thinking, oh, my God, first, uh, uh, he's just like used black market, fill up with black market gas. My papers had run out. So I was in the country illegally uh, and we had all these um, tapes uh, of interviews uh, and photographs of us with top rebel commanders so um, and some military positions so you know <laughs> technically yeah you could have been taken out as a spy uh, immediately so um, we were lucky enough to escape from that predicament um, wow. so when I shouldn't really say this but when young people complain about not having a safe space it's like you have no idea what a safe space is you're not going to be arrested by the secret police you're not going to be murdered you're not going to have your fingernails pulled out you're not going to step on a landmine on the way to school so um my perspective is uh, is very different um 
obviously I don't want to belittle anybody's individual struggle, but right. you know, I've always had this, uh, been, I, I try and it was very traumatic, but I take the lessons that I can. And one of the ones is how privileged we are to enjoy a life that is mostly prosperous and relatively secure compared to some parts of the world where they know nothing of that, where every day is a insecurity and fear and, and danger. So the, the rebels at that time were really strict uh, interpreters of the Quran. Some of them. Oh, some of them. Yes. So some were more liberal than others. Other, more, some were more nationalistic in terms of wanting to free their country from foreign occupation okay. and foreign ideology yeah, right. rather than uh, strict Islam. And you would often see one of the reasons they failed to overthrow the communist government was because the government bought some factions that were more, less uh, extreme and then uh, other factions would fight each other from time to time. Uh, in in you know between each other, yeah. there was no overwhelming single um, uh, Islamic group like the the Taliban emerged many years uh, like a few about five years after I was there as a as a monolithic force. Uh, the the country at that time broke down along assorted religious and um, ethnic lines Lined. more than. Um, not to say that some of them were not extremely right, um, right. Um, Islamic fundamentalist because, you know, obviously right. the taxi driver that I just mentioned is an example of how, you know, people were afraid of saying right. the wrong thing or creating the wrong impression right. to the wrong people. Right. So uh, this book chronicles all of that what happened. Yes. And yeah. there's, and, um, if I do a quick plug, there's a, it's available as an audio book through um, Audible and uh, through Amazon and through my own website, chriswolfbooks.com. Or you can come in and to um, the local bookstores in Franklin, uh, have it as well, Escape Into Fiction, yeah. and uh, at the CAF, at the Intermission, at the yeah. FSPA building. Yeah. Great, great, great. That is one, have you written in any uh, other books? Uh, well, I'm ha working on about seven, uh, one of which is um, making more progress than others. And they're all, a d there's no, I'm not in a genre, I'm just all over the place. There's a couple of fiction things, there's a, um, a couple of uh, historic things. The, the one I'm working on is the uh, British Army Administration during the American Revolutionary War. So, you know, it's one of my other side passions is... The, what uh, administration? The British military. British military. Administration during the American Revolution. Okay. Um, because uh, it's fascinating how a superpower can mess up. Um, and uh, that was one of my other uh, passions in, when I was living in New England. It was, uh, I was a reenactor for a while and they threw me in a red coat and made me a sergeant and then an officer because they had the accent. Right. They thought it would sound more authentic. Right. <laughs> so that was fun. That was just like, I was in the uh, British equivalent of the National Guard as a young man as well. So um, it was like being back in the Territorial Army because you run around the woods with guns, shooting at your friends all day and then have a little um, tipple at night. So around a campfire. So that was, um, that was quite fun. Wow. What, what brought you to the United States? Uh, so work. Um, the BBC um, got involved in a co-production with WGBH in Boston in uh, the late 90s. And uh, at a certain point, they decided that the 
BBC wanted to place people they trusted with good sound knowledge of international affairs on this program because it was dealing with international affairs. It's called yeah. The World yeah. on 89.7 and uh, was very successful for many years. Um, <laughs> and uh, so, yeah, I came to work on that program for one year, and one year became two, and two years became three, and and I'm still here, people. Sorry. <laughs> so, did, did you are you still here uh, on a work permit, or did you apply for citizenship? Or uh, yes, no, I became a citizen uh, okay. through through marriage. Through marriage. Yes. Okay. You uh, like Franklin. Love Franklin, yeah. Um, it's getting a bit busy, um, busier than when I moved in in 2018. But it's, it, uh, the traffic's getting a little heavier, and you know it seems to be getting more crowded. So, you know, but yes, right now it's it's perfect. We got a great space where we live. I love the culture. I love the commitment to education in town. I love having the country's first public library here. Uh, yeah. It always gives me bragging rights yeah. whenever I'm talking to people about my hometown. Right. Um, uh, and um, obviously uh, the quality content of WFPR. Yeah. So. It's, it's a, a great place uh, to be. The more, the more perfect union then uh, it kind of would uh, fits in with uh, any topic that uh, is, has history or foreign or international. <laughs> but you, right. also, you, you also seem to be very uh, knowledgeable uh, about current. Uh, issues either environmental or, or uh, I, I I try. I mean, I guess um, I'm not. I used to, obviously, as the way I was describing my work, we couldn't afford not to be a hundred percent engaged with the, the latest news all the time. And so, again, it was a great privilege to retire from the daily news grind and um, enjoy days where I don't even look at the news. But yeah, I try to keep up a little bit. Uh -huh. Still, just by habit, but um, yeah, it's uh, I'm not as committed as I used to be. Some people will bring topics up, and I'm thinking, why is that important? Why why is that happening? <laughs> I better go find out. <laughs> so, oh, yeah, that is that is absolutely wonderful. Um, in in the BBC, mm -hmm. uh, they still have a a. News program on WGBH, don't they? Don't they have a news broadcast? Oh, so n uh, no, the partnership um, ended in 2020. So that was when I um, decided to retire from the industry. Oh, um, but it seems like on some station there's a BBC program. Yes, on uh, WBUR and many other stations around the country, you can hear News Hour, which is another one of my old programs that's produced in London. Um, and that's uh, one hour of international news. Uh, I think they carry it twice a day, uh, around 9 a.m. and uh, later in the at night. That's on the radio, right? Correct. Yeah. And is there a, but there's a, on the television, there's, I've seen, seems to me that I've come across the BBC news uh, cast program somewhere. Uh, the, well, the BBC has its own channel. Uh, they, there's the there's the world news, world service news. That's and that's the wrong channel. Yes, so that's broadcast. That was that's created intentionally for a global audience. Um, and then there's also BBC America, which I don't think they have. 
you know, honestly, I don't know anymore. <laughs> but uh, yes, you can find BBC content uh, all over the places, news and obviously, you know, dramas and uh, comedies. Yeah, that's great, that's great. Yeah. Well, Chris, is there something else you'd like to cover? Uh, no, I'd say thank you so much for the opportunity. Uh, again, if people want to look for my book, it's on Amazon or chriswolfbooks.com. And, uh, or again, pop into Escape Into Fiction uh, and or the cafe at Intermission. Uh, as you may know, I work part-time now. In terms of giving back to the community in, in retirement, I got the, the podcast, the, the More Perfect Union, uh, my writing, and I also um, help out at the uh, Intermission Cafe. Tell me about the Intermission Cafe. That seems to have hours beyond uh, what are their hours? Uh, so mostly eight to seven, eight, uh, eight to in the seven. morning till seven in the evening. Um, we close an hour earlier on Fridays and then we're uh, open from eight till two on Saturdays. Um, occasionally, if we're supporting special events that the Franklin School of Performing Arts is putting on, we may have additional hours, yeah. but um, that's, the, that's the main hours and great place for the best coffee in town. So what do they serve, coffee and uh, scones and? Uh, um, coffee, muffins, brownies, and uh, sandwiches, soup, salad, breakfast sandwiches. Um, you, you can pretty much, pretty much runs the gamut. Of, so you can come in for breakfast, lunch, or? Or, a, or uh, supper, yeah. Oh, for supper too. Yeah, uh, if you get in in time, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Well, uh, Chris, it, it's a pleasure having you. Thank you, Frank. Uh, nice and, to get uh, to know you. A bit uh, better. And uh, we want people to uh, listen on uh, Mondays on 102.9 FM uh, toward a more perfect union. And it's on three times uh, during that day, which you can go to franklin.tv and see the times and the schedule. So thank you for coming in. And, My uh, pleasure. I, I hope uh, uh, we have a chance to talk again on the More Perfect Union on different issues. Wonderful. The feeling's mutual. Thanks, Frank. Thank you for watching. This is Frank Falvey and Chris Wolf uh, wishing you a great day, and we, we hope you're very healthy and active, and uh, look forward to uh, talking to you again. Thank you so much. This program was made possible by your Franklin friends and neighbors. Good folks, just like you. Thanks for supporting Franklin TV. And thanks for watching.